in her late 50s, which was somewhere around 98 or 99, uh, she came back to her roots. She came, uh, in a way, came back to her faith, uh, came back to the church, uh, kind of a lot of the deals that happened in there. And when she did that, she made this point where she decided she wanted to commit a lot of her writing uh, to the Lord, what she said. And she wrote uh, another trilogy called um, Christ the Lord. And it was, uh, it's fiction, right? But the first one, uh, Christ the Lord out of Egypt, was kind of uh, imagining what it would have been like if you've read the Gospels and there's like parts of Jesus' boyhood that are told, and then it picks up again when he's like 30, right? And so he tries to imagine what would have life been like then. Did he do miracles just to prank his brothers and all that kind of stuff? It's fiction. She says it's fiction. It's fun, right? So she's, she wrote that book, and at the end, she has an appendix that's kind of an author's note that tells a bit of her story of uh, leaving the church at a young age and then coming back and kind of what, uh, what led to that. Uh, since she couldn't email her, she couldn't come here today. So I'm going to summarize a story for you uh, that's from that author's note in the back of, the back of her book there. Um, let me kind of tell let me set it up this way. This is a bit of her story. She, though she's an author, you know, by trade, uh, as hobby, or you might even say more than that, like she has a real driving passion to, she's kind of a historian, She's actually traveled a whole lot, um, probably for fun as well, but really in part, some of her desire to learn, uh, specifically about religious history. And one of the faiths that's really intrigued her has been Judaism, for the reason that there's been a lot of faiths that have come, risen to prominence at some point, and then faded away. But she's like, Judaism has kind of lasted for a long time, and it just really intrigued her. So she started studying researching it. She uh, got to a part of Jewish history where she was reading it, and it's uh, kind of where the, a real pivotal part in it where Rome is battling uh, you know, Israel and the, the Jewish wars lasted for seven years, culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem, Rome surrounding it. They built uh, all these like kind of ramparts to, to come and take over the city. They even put up scaffolding uh, where they would crucify Jews to kind of fear monger the rest of them into just giving up, right, to end this war sooner. Um, Josephus writes a lot about this. She had read those. Um, when I was in high school, and you know, like my own faith was just, in some ways, felt so new and alive, and I just wanted to take it all in. I, I actually, I'd heard people talk about this. I saw the works of Josephus on my grandmother's shelf, and I just took them one day when she wasn't looking. I never gave them back. But I read a little bit of this. It's kind of hard, hard to read, but I think she read even more of it. He does this part where it almost it's like an hour-by-hour history of, of like the real intense part of that battle. And so she, she kind of gets to all this, and then she's like, well, where else uh, could I read about this? And so she thinks, oh, yeah, uh, the New Testament, right? Like, uh, she, when she had left the church, and just a lot of, she had adopted a lot of maybe prevailing thought about the New Testament, which was, uh, even though it's recording events early in the you know, first uh, century, they weren't written until later, and that allowed time for the things like miracles and things like that to be embellished and added in. And it explained, you know, could explain a lot of, you know, from a secular standpoint, a lot of the New Testament, right? And so she, but she goes back and reads them again for herself. And she's really surprised to see that there's actually nothing in there about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Like this is the, the main city of Jerusalem and the main temple, the crux of this whole religion. She's like, why is this not in here? Like, I don't get it. This is like a major flaw in history, right? That would have been in there. And then it dawns on her. Maybe they weren't written late. You know, maybe these weren't second and third century products. Um, maybe they were written like before it actually happened. 
And that, that whole thought kind of opened her eyes to a whole world of scholarship that was, she had been formerly unaware of. Um, essentially, like, you know, validating the, the early writing of the, of the New Testament and the Gospels, that all this, uh, most of those writers had done it before 70 AD, right? It hadn't happened yet. That's why, that's why it wasn't in there, right? And, and her second thought is, wow, this, this has implications. I'd written off most of my Christian roots uh, for reasons like this, right? But if these are actually eyewitness accounts, historical documents written early when there's still other witnesses that can corroborate or deny the writings you're having, she says, wow, like this, you know, and she starts to reexamine the life of Christ, his claims, his life, even his death and resurrection. And that whole deal kind of coming in through the back door, if you will, uh, led her back to faith in Christ. And it's pr- pretty wild. Uh, later, she, she wrote a second uh, book, called uh, Called Out of Darkness, and it's just her story. Uh, she says it's a, it's a spiritual story, spiritual journey. And uh, it's part of this I actually want to read some of. It's really good. This is what she says. I think I've got it up here. Uh, Jeremy might be on there. She says, uh, he, uh, talking about God, knew how or why everything happened. He knew the disposition of every single soul. He wasn't going to let anything happen by accident. Nobody was going to hell by mistake. This was his world, all this. He had complete control of it. His justice, his mercy, were not our justice or our mercy. What folly to even imagine such a thing. I didn't have to know uh, how he was going to save the unlettered and unbaptized, or how he would redeem the conscientious heathen who'd never spoken his name. I didn't have to know how my gay friends would find their way to redemption, or my hardworking secular humanist friends could or would receive the power of his saving grace. I didn't have to know why good people suffered agony or died in pain. He knew. And it was his knowing that, was over, that overwhelmed me, his knowing that became completely real to me. And why should I remain apart from him uh, just because I couldn't grasp all this? He could grasp it. I just think that's really profound. And it's really moving to me as someone that, uh, you know, not identical story, but similar experience with Christ. And um, I think in just a few short paragraphs, she puts her fingers on probably what a lot of y'all felt for years, right? A lot of uh, pains and struggles and things that can definitely trip us up, uh, both in faith, but even in, uh, you, know, bi- you know, bigger factors as well. And it's like her answer is, is, hey, your God's too small, right? You know, if, if you've had to come up with the notion of what he's like and, and figure him out on your own, Maybe he is something you've created and not something that's actually there, right? She, so she's saying, you know, uh, that's what led her back, right? So she, uh, this is not the end of her story. I, I've got to share a little bit more. Some of y'all are familiar with this. Um, well, side comment first. Like some of y'all kind of may have had a similar experience to her in this or have friends that do kind of both ways that had the, you know, I don't know how college played in for her, but maybe you, you had, you know, a college professor or whatever that uh, had raised issues about the New Testament, about the validity of Christianity and thrown out, you know, some bullets or thoughts that um, you'd never thought of before, you know, hadn't really given, gosh, I, I've never really wrestled with that, like. And that's all you were hearing was, was uh, you know, his bullets or her bullets of the arguments against. And I, just as like side word of encouragement, you know, like, Anne, there, there may be room for re-exploring, you know, like, did I take a look thoroughly at both, you know, both sides of the coin here? If it makes me wonder, you know, 
because I've seen this happen so many times, you know, something happens in your life, you, you lift your head up, um, something leads you to, to really find and experience uh, God. Maybe even, maybe even one of your college professors is like in Christ, connected to a community of loving believers, and is just sitting there thinking, what did I do to those poor kids, you know? And, you know, and we could still get stuck on those things year later if we don't give it a personal look ourselves. So that's just a little plug to encourage you down that road. But uh, Anne, uh, 10 years after she's been back in, in church and said she's been back in faith in Christ, um, reaches a point where she, she, put, she posted this still on her Facebook pages in July 2010. It kind of made a lot of head news. You might, you might have seen this. And this is what she said. Uh, in July 2010, she said she quit. I've got this up there too, I believe. She says, today, I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain completely committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or to being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, yes, it's a word, I looked it up, and I had to practice it four times before I came here, uh, disputatious, I don't think it's positive, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years, I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience, it's interesting, my conscience will allow nothing else. My faith in Christ is central to my life. My conversion from a pessimistic atheist, lost in a world I didn't understand, to an optimistic believer in a universe created and sustained by a loving God is crucial to me. But following Christ does not mean following his followers. Christ is infinitely more important than Christianity and always will be, no matter what Christianity is, has been, or might become. As you can probably imagine, that post, uh, probably more than any uh, we've ever put on our Facebook page, has caused quite a stir. And uh, soon after she was interviewed and she said this, similar sentiments, she said, My commitment uh, to Christ remains at the heart and center of my life. Transformation in Him is radical and ongoing. That I feel now, and I'm called to be an outsider for Him, to step away from the words Christian and Christianity is something that my conscience uh, demands of me. In other words, she's saying, like, uh, what I see in Jesus, when, you know, when I'm myself now back reading the Bible and examining it firsthand, what I, you know, see, I don't know her specific church, right? I don't know if she's talking about that or at large or both. But what she's seeing there are, are things that she's called under the label Christian. She's, she's greatly struggling with, right? Um, and, you know, some of you may, may struggle with what she's saying there. Uh, some of you might be like, whatever, amen. Yeah, I've been saying that like for a long time, you know. Uh, that's okay, you know, kind of where, wherever you're at with her, either her thoughts on that or her decision to kind of pull back. Um, at least I want to ask you to, to be open-minded with the tension that she's putting before us today, right? And I would even say that even if you do struggle with what she's saying, probably all of us have felt that tension at some level. You know, maybe it was like this. If you, if you have grown up in church or, or in the faith at some level and, you know, you have still hung on to it. Maybe you had a good friend in church or something growing up. And, you know, when you got to college, uh, you know, maybe you at least hung on. Or who knows, maybe you, you were thriving, you know, in your faith. Your friend kind of pulled back from all of it. And, yeah, you know, maybe you ask them about it. And they're like, well, they're, they're hostile and they're quarrelsome and they're disputatious. Yes, it's a word. And you're like... Uh, yeah, they kind of are sometimes, you know, and uh, 
maybe you wish they'd had a different experience, right? Or, or maybe you wish they'd, they'd decided differently on, on whether to pull back or not. Either way, uh, there's a part of that tension that still remains, right? A big part. And that's a little bit of what we're trying to put our finger on and address and, and actually look uh, at Jesus himself in, in, in uh, the New Testament. Um, and I would just say here, you know, and she might not be entirely off base. So last week we discovered, Jake looked at this, uh, kind of some key words of Jesus. Uh, when he's talking to his, his closest followers, his 12, right? And he tries to leave them, you might say, with a big idea of what it means to be his follower. And one of the things we discovered, though, is that it is with the word Christian. You know, Jake looked at, uh, it's actually, that word itself is only found three times in the whole, in the whole Bible, right? And it's interesting to comment through it. All three of them, it's used by outsiders of Christians. And it was even a little bit of a derogatory term uh, initially, right? Uh, those, you know, those Christians. But they kind of stuck. They ended up using it of, it, of itself. But it's not, really, it's not really defined, right, what it is. And that's the crux of the problem. But when you look at what Jesus used, um, he used uh, a different word, and that's the one that we're going to look at. But the ambiguity of the word Christian is a little bit of of the problem, right? You can have Christians on both sides of of nearly every issue. You know, financial issues, social issues. Um, You can have them, you know, maybe on legal issues. It's why you can have nations that you would say are predominantly Christian uh, go to war with each other. You know, uh, think of our own civil rights in our country. You had Christians on both sides, you know, uh, of that deal, which is still so shocking to me. But, you know, they're wrong in Jesus' name. No, 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 they're wrong in Jesus' name. Then with Christian, because it's so ambiguous, you can almost believe anything, do, you know, do anything. And that's the crux of the problem. So last week, Jake turned to us to John 13, 35. And I want you all to look at that here uh, to pull it up. And in this, you, you see that Jesus... Use the word of his followers, the word disciple. And disciple is very specific. It's almost terrifyingly so, right? Uh, you, can, you can call yourself a Christian and almost change nothing, right? Uh, but not so with disciple. You know, it's, it's, it's a way of, of Jesus described of following him that's such radical transformation, internal and, and external, right? That, that's very specific and gripping that he is pointing us towards here. And at the crux of what he says to be a disciple, this is where he's talking to his, his closest followers, and it's like, if, if, you, if you don't hang on all the rest, don't recommend you know, letting go of the rest of the Bible, but if you, if you miss a lot, let me get to the heart of things, right? That's what Jesus is trying to put his finger on, an aspect of being a follower of him that's absolutely critical, and he says it here, John thirteen thirty five. By this, all people... Will know that you are my disciples uh, if you have love for one another. Now, I don't, you know, depending on where, what your background is, you may have, in, in reality, thought the end of that verse or that verse should have read differently. Like, uh, it's more on right belief. Um, by this, all people will know you're my disciples uh, if you have uh, right belief and right doctrine, right? Some of you all might have experienced that, which I would say, yes. <laughs> and I, th- I think what John would say, and we're going to look, we're going to look today uh, at John, who wrote not only this verse but a couple of epistles. We're going to look at one of his epistles. What John would say to this is, yes. But the way you know if you're on the right track with with right belief is, does it lead you to be a loving person? And in a way, it, it's like he's putting the outcome 
of what right belief should lead to. And it's how we can know if we have it, right? In other words, if what I'm believing about God and his nature, uh, how, he, how I relate to him and what, what that should mean in my life, if it doesn't lead me to that, then there's a breakdown, right? Either I'm not believing something right, like I've got it wrong about God or myself or both, or, or maybe even if I am understanding it right, it, it's like I'm kind of mentally acknowledged it at one level, but it's... In reality, it's just kind of a loosely held idea. It hasn't really gripped me, right? I haven't really thought it through and let it do its work inside of me if, if it hasn't made me to, to become a loving person. Uh, it, it is uh, the test. It's the test. Do we love one another? Okay, so the, the passage we're going to look at today, it's, this is uh, John as well, who, who uh, if it's still up there, yeah, the same John. 50, roughly 55 years after you know, he probably hears Jesus say these words, uh, he, he's an old man. And he has seen, he's seen a lot. There, you know, there's the 12 disciples. Uh, he's actually, at this point, the only of those 12 remaining alive. There's Judas, hung himself. And the other 10 all died uh, because of their faith in Christ. At this point, uh, this is after the Gospel of John, he, he saw Jerusalem destroyed, that whole seven years war, and, and it was pretty awful. Like, and that's, you know, we don't know probably a whole lot about his personal life outside of that, but like the guy is not unknown to pain and suffering and trouble, right? And that context is helpful. We'll, we'll come back to it a little bit. But let's just look together at 1 John 4. We'll read it, and then just we're going to walk through a couple, a couple of the verses here, drawing out some truths of it. And uh, so track with me here. If you've got your Bibles, you can look on the screen behind us. This is 1 John 4. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son, into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love uh, is perfected in us. Okay, so just hang with me. Let's kind of move quickly here. Look back at, look back at verse 7 with me, all right? Uh, verse 7 says, Beloved, let's love one another, um, for love is from God. Again here, I, I just think we've got to put ourselves like in John's shoes. You know, lost 11 of his closest friends, uh, seeing his, his country's you know, capital city, and probably more importantly to him, you know, the, the temple, like, worship destroyed, right? He's, he's seen all of that, um, gone through some troubles and hardship in that, and he's he's still a person that is able, is able to say that, right? And in verse 8, he says, you know, whoever doesn't love God, I'm sorry, I'm going to read that right. Whoever does not love does not know God uh, because, well, you go like, well, well wait a minute. Um, you know, we're talking about someone who knows, you know, who knows God. And you can think, well, wait a minute, you know, like, uh, I mean, my preacher growing up or whatever, like he, uh, he maybe wasn't a very loving person, but, but man, he really knew God. You should, you should just hear him talk about the Bible, right? Or like I know this, this lady, um, a lot of her coworkers can't really put up with her, you know, or want to be around her, but she leads this Bible study. Man, she, she just knows so much, right? She, 
it's like John would say to these, no, <laughs> time out, no, you know, that we're moving in, in the wrong direction here, right? Whoever does not, love, uh, does not love does not know God because God is love. Let me, just, let me put a brief interjection here, too, as well. If, if you are a person here that, that you feel like your, your faith is in Christ, and you look to him in that way, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to cause you to, to sit here primarily and question, do, am I, do I really have a relationship with God? I'm not saying there's, there's no place for that. But what I think John is saying here is talking about a living, experiential, like experiencing his nearness and his presence kind of knowing of God. You know, which uh, I think there's room, uh, you know, it, in a way to, to have believed in the grace of God on your behalf. And yet to the day-to-day, you're not relating to him that way, right? And it's, it's not, so therefore it's not fleshing itself out in your life. Um, whoever does not love does not know God because God's love. You know, so what's this mean? If you're, if you're a God person, you know, a godly person, it's, this is the thing. You know, if some, well, if someone walked up to us and says, well, what's, you know, what's God like? I don't know where you'd start. Um, it might be easy to start with all the, uh, the O's, you know, the omnipresent, you know, omniscient, omnipotent. Which are, which are all true, right? Like John would agree with this. You can find all these, these pictures of God and his power and his knowledge and his infiniteness, you know, implicit through, throughout the Gospels, right? And so what's he saying? No, I think he's trying to say that when you, when you, you get to something very central that, that God is revealing about himself here as a part of his character, or he's, he's, not that he's not more <laughs> than this character, but that God is love, is so central to who he is, he's saying, don't miss this. This is, who, this is what God is like, right? And remember, John, you know, like probably like many of you, John's a person who's seen pain, he's seen loss. He might not be offering to us all of the whys of those things, but what he's saying is, I, I have seen an aspect of God and his love that's, that's even larger, even larger than those. Nine, let's look at verse 9 and 10. For he says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that God loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, I don't know if you all ever have this trouble when you're reading a verse, you can count, or any book for that matter, <clears throat> you can get to the end of a paragraph and you're like, what did it just say? This is one of those verses I think that's real easy to, to read too fast. And I want to draw out a part here because this is, this is even something Anne Rice was just putting her finger on. Here he says in verse 9, this is, God's made, this is the love of God was made manifest among us. I mean, among us. This idea here, this is John saying, I saw Jesus, right? This is his, this is his reference to like, his years physically like eyewitness and, and rubbing shoulders and sharing life with Jesus, right? He, he saw God's love manifest because he was with Jesus, right? He's drawing our attention back to, to his presence with him. Uh, and what did he see? You know, he saw his life, uh, his love, his transforming teaching, um, 
and he saw his death, and he saw his resurrection, right? He, he got to see all these things firsthand and up close. In verse, you know, verse 10, he says this, he says, and this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, another hard one there, for our sins. He loved us and was a covering, a payment, a propitiation for our sins. I want you to think with me about one thing from this verse too. How he uses this in, inclusive words, us, you know, uh, God's love for us and the covering and propitiation for our sins. What's this, you know, what does that mean? It means that there's not a person that you'll see, that you'll rub shoulders with, that isn't deeply loved by God, right? There, there isn't that person out there, you know, uh, not here, not, not anywhere in the world, not anywhere in history. There isn't a person like that, that, that isn't covered in that us and our, right? Um, doesn't matter where they've been, doesn't matter where they've come from. Your mother-in-law, my mother-in-law is awesome. Yours might not be. I've heard some stories. Your neighbor, uh, that business guy that cheated you out of that deal, you know, um, the person living under the bridge, right? Uh, there's, there's not a person that's not covered in us and our, God's love for us in that his death didn't cover, uh, the cost of, right? That God loves each and every one of those people. It's just like John saying this, you know, at the end of my life, I'm as convinced as ever that Jesus is the son of God who came to bear the, bear the weight and restore the world. Look at verse 11 here. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Again here, just I'm kind of moving quick, but I want you just to hang on to some of these words because they're so, they're so important here. Think about this. Where he says, if, you know, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If God, we ought also. That, that ought word um, was like a a bit of like a financial word in the time that tried to communicate this idea of indebtedness, right? Like a debt-debtor uh, relationship. And it's, this is what he's saying, right? There's a debt-debtor relationship between us and God because of his love. And there's one between us and people, right? It's, it's like we owe a debt of love, you know, toward others. And really one leading, leading to the other. Um, and let's just flesh it out a little bit. You know, this, this verse, in a way, is trying to put its finger on, our, on a motivation for something that probably everyone in here wants to do, right? The, the, the idea of love one another. I don't think there's probably anyone in this room that, gosh, why do they have to talk about love, right? No, right? But the deal that we already want to do, uh, it puts its finger on a, on a motivation. And one that's, I, I, quite honestly, is, is robust, and sustaining if you want to do it for more than a couple hours or, or, you know, or a few days before, before you fizzle out. And this is what he's saying, that we, we do it for God's sake. We don't do it because we think that the people that he's calling us to love or the people around us that, that we need to love are deserving of it. Or whether we you know, think they're deserving of it, right? And that gets in all those weird thoughts, you know, how, how in the world will we even figure that out, right? But it has, it has nothing to do really with that factor at all, right? He's saying the, the, because we've been loved, 
we love. He, he's, he's making a pretty simple equation. Let me just flesh out this way, because I, th- I think Jesus is, he's got a story actually in the Gospels that was really helpful, and I won't turn to it. Let me just summarize it. It's, you know, one of his teaching parables, story with a point, right? Where, many of y'all remember this, it's the one where it says there's a king, uh, and he's got a subject who uh, owed him just an enormous wealth, right? Like, you get the gist from the story. It's like, almost unpayable, you know, if he worked hard the rest of his life. And the king calls him in for payment. He can't do it. So he starts to put him in prison. Uh, the man, uh, you know, gets on his knees and, just, and begs for mercy. And the king forgives him, right? He actually says, okay, uh, your enormous debt, I will, uh, I'll forgive. And, and he goes home, free man, right? A neighbor, friend, something like that, has a nearly negligible amount uh, that he owes that guy. And... You know, whatever the justice system was of the day, he enacted and had this guy who owes so little uh, and hasn't put in prison. You know, the, uh, Jesus tells a story. The king hears about it. He's, you know, he's furious uh, and has the first man, you know, put in prison, right? And it's, you know, it's, it's a story with a point. And he's saying, in a way, so it is with God. We're supposed to read ourselves in the story as the first man. The one who's been forgiven so much by comparison, the hurts, the things that would keep us from really being loving, you know, are so small compared to, to our, our deal with God, right? And, I, you know, I, I know uh, sin, the topic of sin is taboo uh, in our culture or city, uh, maybe even passe, you know, some people would say. But, but think about it here for a minute. Think about what Jesus is saying. If the, the, the point of, of that story is true, and it, it, it has an implication, right, of, of what it should do in your life. If the point of that story is true, and there's not an, an enormous deal uh, in my life, a brokenness that God has forgiven, and you just take on more of like just a vague idea of love from Jesus, and, and it doesn't necessarily include an enormous debt in my own life being uh, released and forgiven, it's like we can start to just yawn at the love of God, you know? It doesn't, it doesn't really uh, grip us anymore. Like, what, what does it even mean? But by contrast, right, if, if, if you hang on to what Jesus is saying here, that, that now I'm restored, I'm free, I'm forgiven, I'm alive, I can turn around, and the small offenses, um, though, they, though they may not seem small, right, I'm able, I'm able to turn around, you know, and do uh, the same deal. You know, uh, a right understanding of my sin does not need to run counter uh, to Jesus' teaching on love. But an understanding of my sin and forgiveness is it, really the gateway to being able to, to relish in his love and let it really transform me, right? It's, it's the gateway to it. Okay, quickly here, let's just look at verse 12, uh, draw out some implications, and we're done. Verse 12 says this, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Real quickly here, let me draw out uh, something that's harder to see, in, in, uh, at least in the ESV here, in this translation, but where it says that God's love abides in us, if you look back at verse 9, where John, he's doing the eyewitness thing, right? And he says that God's love was manifested among us. 
the among us and in us are the same actual two like words. And, and this is what he's trying to draw out, I believe. He's, he's saying, like, John was originally convinced of God's incredible love because he saw it, right? It's like he, Jesus himself was, was in the flesh. You know, he was one of those people that got that privilege of being, spent, you know, seeing Jesus. And then here's what he's saying. Like, when, when the people who know him love each other, you know, in every direction, right? This, this kind of spider web of, of loving relationships. There, it's, he's among us. You know, I mean, uh, you, you read the Bible, and it tells us, right, that, that Jesus, like, actually physically is in heaven with the Father right now, right? But he's saying, when, when we're that way, there's a part in which Jesus is still, like, tangibly among us. It's like you can taste him and see him and feel him by how... He, this is happening, right, in each other's lives and, and, in, and in our community. But before we, like before we finish, I, I need to say a word on this because some of you, like, some of you who've seen, you know, or had a distaste of a misunderstood Christianity in your mouth and you hear that we need to be loving, that part can be an can be inspiring thought, right? But others of you who've tried to go down that road for very long and be a loving person— not, and not just to the people that love you. <laughs> if you try to do that for very long, that's hard, right? If you've been hurt by someone and then to forgive them and to love, that's hard, right? How, how in the world do we actually take this thought that Jesus has and do it for more than a moment? And I just have to put my finger on it for a moment because I, I need it. And it's this. It, it's, I want to get there quickly. I'm just going to read a short per, per, quote portion, can't get the words out here of it, of an artist I really enjoy named David Wilcox. He uh, wrote this song called Break in the Cup, and he puts his finger on this, on something we need here if we're going to enact the truth of what Jesus is saying. I just want to read a short per- portion of his song. He's, uh, the context of it, he's writing it to his wife after years of them trying to love each other. And he says, uh, I tried so hard to please you, to be the love that fills you up. I tried to pour on sweet affection, but I think you've got a broken cup. Because you can't believe I love you. I try to tell you that there is no doubt, but as soon as I fill you with all I've got, the little break will let it run right out. And later he talks about the converse of of her trying to love him. He says, I guess you cannot make me happy. That's a money-back guarantee. You can pour yourself out till you're empty, trying to be just who I'd want you to be. You cannot make me happy. It's just the law of gravity and the break in the cup that holds love inside of me. And in the end, he, he uh, says this. He says, we cannot trade empty for empty. We must go to the waterfall. For there's a break in the cup that holds love inside us all. A break in the cup that holds love inside us all. And now just think about that here, right? Like he's talking about a marriage relationship. But this applies to any relationship, any person that we try to love, right? He's putting his finger on my brokenness. I, if I try to pour out love, I, it'll run out, and I won't have any left, and I'll be looking for someone else to pour it into me who also has none left. We, we need another source we can go to, a deeper source, as he says, uh, a waterfall. Uh, and that's uh, how we'll be different. What, is, what does this mean? It probably means a lot of things, but, but let me just put my finger on one aspect. 
I think, at the center of it. One of the things it means is uh, our, our prayer relationship to God can't just be once a month. It also can't just be a list of needs. Now, of course, God loves us, right? He, he, he wants to hear our needs. I'm not saying that. But we can't, like, we can't approach God in prayer uh, just as if he's a means to an end, right? Like, provide for me these things I need that will ultim- be my ultimate end, that will ultimately make me happy. God, help me to get those, to get to what I really want. He, he's the greatest end. And it, it's his presence, his, his nearness, I'm not saying that that's is a, is a like it's a, like a light switch you turn on and tomorrow morning your your prayer life will will resemble a waterfall right you know these are really big words but like it's learned but it's there right there, there's a there's a nearness to God Himself that we have to find if we're gonna be this kind of people right if we're gonna love not just for five minutes when I walk out the door of a church meeting. But if, if, if I'm going to be, become a loving person, I need a source that's bigger than me. All right, so, so I'm just guessing at this point, so maybe don't take this part too seriously. But what Jesus is talking about here, and what John's talking about, I don't think that's what Anne Rice would have, would have quit. You know, I don't think she would have quit a, a community of believers Loving each other in, in the power that God provides. You know, uh, and I'm not suggesting, you know, we, we start firing in all ten commandments or something like If we just take this one, <laughs> this one new one, that we would love one another, we, people would know we're his disciples by that. If we just took that one, right, and said, okay, 2014, uh, in 2015 we can go back to being disputatious. But for 2014, you know, if 2014, we're, we just took this one, right? And we're, we're personally going to the waterfall and living it out. Uh, wouldn't, be dif- wouldn't we be different? Wouldn't the, it, it, even bigger than just us, wouldn't the world be different? If uh, followers of Jesus everywhere were, were doing that? Maybe there's a sense that all of us need to quit Christianity and become disciples. taking in God deeply and, li- and living out his life. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, you know, <laughs> I probably need uh, the truth of this uh, more than anyone else. Uh, Lord, that, that I would drink deeply from you, that I would not, in theory... Um, but in, in practice, Lord, draw near to you to experience you who is life indeed. Think of Peter uh, when you asked him if, if he was going to leave like so many others were. And he said, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of life. Lord, may, may I see you that way and embrace you that way uh, to become who you want me to become. Uh, God, we love you and give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.